This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Caroline Casey. Caroline is a visionary activist astrologer whose unique fusion of astrology, compassionate social activism, esoteric spiritual traditions, and humor is known to audiences internationally. She has a degree in semiotics from Brown University and hosts a regular radio show, The Visionary Activist Show on KPFA in the San Francisco Bay Area. With Sounds True, she's the creator of an audio learning course on astrology from her unique perspective called Visionary Activist Astrology, and also an audio program called Making the Gods Work for You, the astrological language of the psyche, where she helps listeners learn how archetypal forces, symbolized as planets or gods, can help create change in our lives and the world. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Caroline and I spoke about how changing our language can change the world, the myth of Inanna, and how it relates to our culture, specifically at this point in time. We also talked about her view of 2012 and the myths that surround it. And finally, how to invite the trickster redeemer to play a significant role during this time when we most need it. Here's my rollicking conversation with Caroline Casey. Caroline, you see the world through what I would call an interesting lens, a lens of myth, metaphor, a lens of the symbolic language. Can you describe a little bit for me? Help me into your way of seeing. Help me understand it. Yes. Okay, so so increasingly, uh, since we've been cavorting, uh, I've been dedicated to what I call the mythic news, that mythology is suffusing uh, the secular and animating it. So just as kind of working themes to put on our table, let's say myth is a metaphoric animation of intrinsic intelligence of nature. We'll play with this. And metaphor is the incarnational garb whereby power enters the world. It's a kind of invitation the the frame being that you know cooperators are standing by um and but that requires they require an invitation you know and what is the function also of the artist within us is to invite in you know in the astrological language venus says you know we don't have to source everything we don't have to even know what to do or to be wise or perfect but to invite it in going come on in you know that quality so i've been increasingly you know, dedicated to what I what is called the the trickster redeemer within us all, and the, whose medicine is the really sine qua non of now because it brews all the other dedicated medicines together. And so we say, as in nature, uh, you know, the only completely reliable teacher, some seeds only sprout after cataclysm. They only come alive after a, a flood or a forest fire. And so, by analogy, in us, some creative seeds only bloom in the midst of being cooked and like ah, yeah. and that's the the return of the trickster redeemer you know whose 
you know, who's interested again in in many forms. Uh, we find we find the trickster redeemer within us and without in many forms. I love Scheherazade from the Arabian Nights, who through her power of eloquence and learning liberates not only women and the land, but even the tyrant who has murdered his own heart. So it's a different kind of hero dynamic from the kind of er, yeah. It goes no, and and adopts the strategies of nature. Um, so, you know, in nature, whenever conflict, whenever conflicting forces come together, spirals ensue. So whether it's galaxies or tornadoes or hurricanes, you know, um, there's a there's a or pouring cold moving cream into hot still coffee or you know hot smoke into cool evening air, spirals. So to tease this into application and strategy about our language and our way of relating, which is to spiral. So the dedication, it says, you know, live as though the desirable story were true, and our assignment really to animate, magnetize, and spiral forth into the memosphere, a, a word I've coined but I like, um, the most irresistibly all-inclusive, you know, story going, come, we need everybody. We need everybody's awakened imagination. And to, you know, frolic in the realm of culture, you know, to uh, insist that the healing of humans' relationship to nature be the center conversation in what passes for public discourse. Um, and part of the model is our, our dedication magnetizes opportunity that we humans have unleashed such horrific rudeness on this beautiful planet that, you know, that we by ourselves cannot resolve it. And in, indeed, it's by ourselves that got us into this pickle. It's the collaborative model we say a working definition of magic is that it's simply a willingness to cooperate with everything you know um, and again that spiraling kind of quality going so you don't face off you go uh, spiral the thing and part of the model is you know as we look out into the world and see the increasing rocking and rolling that is you know inescapable for almost everybody now the the floods the the fires the tornadoes, the hurricanes. I, I asked a great um, mathematician, weather expert, whom I call a mathematician, I go, what do hurricanes want? Because he's willing to talk that way. And he goes, they want what we all want. They want peace. Uh, they're trying to resolve conflict and move to the North Pole. So the greater the cataclysm we see out there of these wild storms and tornadoes speaks to us of the enormity of the imbalance. And so for all of us to metaphorically, in a sense, step into the center of the whirling storm and, and to, to adopt these uh, forms of resolution and spiraling in our manner of being, you know, uh, then we begin to cooperate with the dynamic and to cool out the thing. But everything's speaking to us. I, I love, you know, the, from the Bible, it says, you know, many, many take a lufarsen, the handwriting on the wall. Um, and apparently what it means is... Um, you know, those who place all their faith in money, you know, will be, you know, uh, um, you know, the, the empire will fall. Well, the empires are falling, you know, and one of the frames, you know, there's many metaphoric frames that we can use, but we might say, you know, one of the models is empire starts, you know, however many thousand years we want to go back, you know, it's kind of, you know, row, you bastards. Uh, and then it begins to run on oil, and now it's kind of going down, and underneath it is the you know, graceful curve of the culture of reverent ingenuity, cooperate with everything and cooperate with nature's ingenuity, kind of rising up. 
So again, part of our assignment as cultural change agents is to become irresistibly eloquent in the invitation, you know, come on over, everybody, from the thing that's going down to the thing that's coming up. I, I love Alan Watts's quote. He says, no sense clinging to the rocks that are falling with you. You know, and so, so you go, you know, come on over, everybody. You know, this is going down, this is coming up. And so that quality of ingenuity and experimentation, that vital kind of evolutionary force is very alive. So it's like, ooh, neck and neck, um, you know, with the, the death and collapse and then the, the rising up. But, but I like noting that, you know, most cable news shows are brought to us by Viagra and Cialis. And so we say in the mythic news, you know, because Empire just can't get it up anymore. Um, so we go, all right, come on over to the, this, this realm of, you know, um, uh, uh, cavorting. Uh, irresistible cavorting and spiraling and inviting everyone to participate. We need the awakened imagination of right-wing golfers and inner-city kids, you know, everybody. Uh, so, and we can certainly turn to the, the myth of Inanna uh, whenever you want as, as a gui- kind of guiding frame as well. We'll get to the myth of Inanna in a moment, but I want to just make sure I'm tracking some of the things you're saying. This word that you coined, mimosphere. Yes. Tell me what that means and how you're using it. Well, uh, so first, um, we say the memosphere is the realm of influence for the trickster redeemer within us all. Um, the the memes, okay, the memes, uh, which people define in different ways, but it's the kind of <clears throat> collective, you know, uh, frame of metaphors that are circulating through the culture. And um, so it's it's also in the realm of ritual magic. And I've been reading, rereading a lot of my kind of source inspirational material from when I was a tiny young person. And I love the novels of Dionne Fortune, who was a, a great Kabbalistic scholar in England. Um, but she put the sum of her knowledge into a series of kind of occult romance novels that are pretty fun and pretty radical. Um, and so she says, you know, the function of private and ritual magic is that work done with intention enters into the collectivity of the of the species, of the human race. So that's the way we think of the memosphere as a kind of embracing atmospheric mm, realm of images in which, you know, that sort of surrounds and suffuses culture. And to engage in a conscious and playful, um, you know, dedication to spiral things out there, you know, it's also part of the language. Like, do we really want to say that something went viral? You know, it's like, no, let's have a, you know, let's have some different words or, or a great ideas, infectious. And we go, no, no, let's change this frame and play with the language. You know, when I work with people doing social action on the streets, even one word change can really change it from complaining to effective. You know, so many, many teammates go, you know, speak truth to power. And we go, speak truth, be power. You know, just let, let's do it now. You know, when people on the street go, what do we want? Peace. You know, when do we want it now? You know, what do we want? Better chance. When do we want it now? And and I like to lead the team or, or, or suggest to the team, you know, what are we creating peace? When are we creating it now? You know, rather than the demand supplicant infantile, you know, kind of like, oh, we, we want the tantrum yoga is what my friend Steve Behrman says, you know, going, oh, you know. So the language of demand and, you know, how do we – how do we get our team, I'm doing a lot of, you know, trickster training for activists, you know, how do we get our team to line up, you know, the language with the actual dedication and aspiration to democracy? 
and and I'm really up for what I call democratic animism, you know, which is you know, a willingness to cooperate with with everything, you know, the the coyotes, the wolves, the quality of intelligence that we reach as a species, a, a quality of playful humility, and, and and to draw upon the rich resources of mythology and also all you know, actual you know, animals and plants, you know, going two drops of coyote medicine and one of raven. And, you know, so I, I also love guiding, you know, uh, ourselves and our team to to customize our own trickster redeemer and the, the play of literalizing metaphor. So, you know, I, I have ongoing kind of trickster training councils, but one of the things we do is Saturn authority, um, and it's our goat. So I like to say, well, let's literalize this, you know, so that nobody gets our goat. Our goat is ungettable, and it's unscapable, too, you know, and it's a very useful thing to introduce to a community, this language, because it really gives people creative and playful autonomy. Somebody got my goat, but it's trotting right back by my side. And where that expression comes from is that racehorses, all high-strung and, you know, in weird servitude, but they, they were given a companion goat that would calm them, their best friend that would calm them, this goat. And unscrupulous, up-to-no-good people before a race would, would get a horse's goat, would steal the goat, you know. So we go, we're getting our goat back, you know. And um, so the the metaphoric realm, and so I, we go, everybody's got their goat, all right, your goat, it might trot off, but it comes back, dum 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 And it restores good humor and autonomy, and then I like to also animate, like, like Dorothy's slippers in The Wizard of Oz, we are rich with, you know, collaborative magic, if we just remember it. So one of the things um, uh, I like to animate for all of us is we all have a magic mirror, meaning the secular critic, you know, holds up a mirror to society and goes, look, you know, it sucks in, in detail, that, which is important. You know, the critique comes first. The trickster within us all, with a wave of the hand, turns the mirror into a window. But look how beautiful it could be. And then with another wave of the hand, into a door. Let's go. <clears throat> and, you know, it's like when we drive, you know, everything's teaching us. You know, in the, in the Russian Revolution, in the Ukraine, Nestor Makhno and the Makhnovists, you know, they, they were engaged in a, in a kind of anarchist social experiment, not in the terms that, you know, anarchism has come to mean, but just meaning a kind of collaborative democratic experiment in which everyone was welcome, but if you didn't want to join, that was cool too. So they were the only province in Russia that had doctors and things, because their invitation was, we're engaged in this experiment, and if you want to play, that's wonderful, and if you don't, you know, that's fine. Everybody else was murdering, you know, you know whoever didn't want to join the thing. And their only poignant form of, of, of vulnerability was... Uh, Trotsky said, you know, surrender your army, because they had the most effective army. And they were like, no. And he said, well, come for a meeting. And they said, okay. And he, you know, killed them all. Um, but that, but nonetheless, what we extract from that is the, we're engaged in this, and we're setting a, we're magnetizing this, you know, and this is where it's going, and this is the creative fun, and this is the culture of reverent ingenuity, and this is the realm of, you know, collaborating with, with nature. I mean, we know we are so wealthy with our teammates. You know, this is part of what I've been, you know, doing in radio for the last 15 years is, you know, who's doing great stuff? Where's the critique? Like, oh, and where's the ingenious collaborative solution derived from nature? You know, so the work of, you know, Paul Stamets and 
and the, the mushrooms and the mycelia, the bioremediating of toxins. And that leads us to, in the mythic realm, the wrathful bikinis who are fantastic and eagerly awaiting their invitation to enter the world stage. And they are, again, mythic animations of the power of nature to metabolize poison on every level, both heavy metals and whatnot, but also, you know, as, as you probably know, but the wrathful bikinis pre-exist Tibetan Buddhism. We're, we're going to a deeper, deeper level underneath, you know, the organized religious structure to the vital kind of forces of nature as they first appear in in collaborative imagery. So the wrestled Dakinis, they weren't pretty. You know, Tibetan Buddhism later made them pretty. They weren't pretty. They were beautiful, which has a kind of, you know, non-ornamental ferocity. And they were at first depicted as, you know, part woman, part animal, like coyote woman, crow woman, very much like these ancient cave paintings are all kind of human-animal hybrids. We are nothing without the animal beings, and we need to derive part of their ingenuity and medicine to be full romping participants in, in evolution. And um, so I love that the wrathful Dakinis, um, they take the toxin of anger and cook it into the tonic of wrath, which is fierce advocacy for life. You know, and they take the, to the, the toxin of seduction and cook it into the tonic of magnetism, bring everything alive. You know, and they, but they are so playful. You know, there's, um, they, they would you know, listen to somebody's lecture and laugh and weep loudly in the back you know, um, of, the, of the audience. And the teacher would say, why are you laughing and weeping? And they say, well, we're, we're laughing because what you're saying is nonsense, and we're weeping because people are taking it seriously. Uh, and they would do it with such kind of dedication, you know, in a kind of spiraling way, that the teacher would go, you're right, let me, let me study with you. So these forces, you know, again, you know, myth, a, a metaphoric animation of intrinsic intelligence of nature, what metabolizes poison on, on every level is certainly what we want to call into play. And I, I love a, a late, great kahuna friend of mine, an actual kahuna, you know, not somebody who took a weekend workshop, raised from birth. And she said she had to learn the dark arts of, of poison and whatnot. And she said not to use them. But, but she said... You know, in a person or a culture, the killing points are the same as the healing points. The difference is intention. So that access to the strategic point in a person or a culture that changes things, and, you know, we, we want to know about that, you know, and then choose. And what I also mean about, you know, this ingenuity of nature that we want to cahoot with and cultivate within and without uh, if we love democracy and freedom, let's say, as a good way to go, and there's all kinds of wonderful things emerging about actual democracy in nature, it's not a human idea, and that we'd, our, our concepts of leadership are, are changing in leadership in nature and deriving the models of leadership from nature. Um, so, you know, for instance, in the, in the movie I Am and in, in many people's writings, they give this great example of the red deer, and the red deer have, you know, a large bull primate's you know, you know, guy, and they go, well, he must be the leader who makes all the decisions. We go, no, actually, he's the sperm donor. And what they show is that there's a decision to be made in the herd about which watering hole to go to when, you know, and crucial, you know, to arrive after the predator animals have left, but not so late that the, that the herd is dehydrated. And what's shown is this beautiful thing at a certain moment – 
the deer will start to look up and they'll look in direction of one or two water holes. And when 51% of the deer are pointing at one direction, they all get up and go. We go, yes, it's, you know, this democracy. And for a long time, I've been really wanting to derive the model of leadership from wolves. And I, I was living with a wonderful wolf dog for a long time. And um, uh, a friend, Michael Fox, head of the Humane Society, also uh, chimed in and said, you know, wolves don't operate on dominance. They operate on charisma. And in wolf culture, charisma means who initiates play best. And it's not just play. It's like, let's go hunting, let's do this thing. But play is very high on their, on their leadership criterion. And they even do theater in which the alpha wolf will bring a bone in and the other wolves will surround it in a circle as a, a ritual theater going, I bring nourishment, ha, ha, ha. And so I go, you know, the leader who engages the ingenuity of the group Wow, I can really support that model of leadership in every realm. What a good idea. And then back to the Uranus realm, if we love democracy and, and leadership and democracy to be found even in nature, then to react to anything is to carry around a portable prison for oneself and for others. To cultivate an ever larger repertoire of responses is to ally ourselves with nature's ingenious evolutionary drive, which in astrology we know, you know, we, we call Uranus the trickster. Uh, it, Uranus, the, the outer planets really represent large forces of biological and social, you know, change and deconditioning. And, you know, each, each one of them has a kind of quality, and they're, they're ramping now. I mean, over the next, you know, into the far foreseeable future, Uranus squares Pluto, which says out of Pluto, out of devastation and the descent to the underworld, comes ingenuity and inventiveness in our own personal lives and collective, you know, how we experiment with each other. And um, that might take us to the myth of Inanna, if you'd like a little brief version of that. Uh, yeah, let's go there. Now, just to give a context for it, you are saying that the myth of Inanna has a particular relevance to our current situation. Absolutely. So... You want to know how? <laughs> I do. So, um, so Inanna really is the the Venus cycle. We, we know that, you know, all myths actually in fairy tales really um, not, uh, carry on a, a culture's knowledge base. And so, the the Inanna myth is the Venus cycle in the sky. Very briefly, you know, um, Venus will be the morning star for nine months approximately and then gets so close to the sun that she disappears, which is called going to the underworld, and then she will emerge as the evening star for nine months and the same cycle repeats. So briefly, the very condensed version is Inanna Venus, you know, who lives in Iraq, uh, in Sumer, underneath Iraq. Um, so she descends to the underworld, again, in which she is stripped of everything external from which she's derived her identity takes off her crown, takes off, you know, everything, everything but her sense of humor. And she arrives in the underworld where she's hung on a meat hook. And the very short version is, but she has a great friend, her sukal, a wonderful word, who descends, uh, who is her best friend, named Ninshipur, you know, um, who descends and brokers her release, a kind of hostage negotiation deal, that she can come back up as long as she sends down a replacement. So she emerges, she comes back up, uh, and everyone was grieving except for her lover, Damuzi, who is still in his fine clothes and does not rise from his throne. And she goes, hmm, i got to send down a replacement. Everyone was grieving but you. I guess it's your turn, boyfriend. You go on down and learn how to navigate the depths, and I'll stay up here. 
she lounges around to recover for some time, going, wow, that was really intense. And then the Sumerian poetry from 2,500 years ago, very trippy, it says one day she's contemplating the wonders of her own vulva, going, oh, it is so fabulous to be a woman. And at that moment, the idea occurs to her that she will become a trickster redeemer, that she will sail to the island of the god of wisdom who has become a tyrant. Okay, and we can think of this in many ways as you know, madmen or you know, uh, orthodoxy or universities or whatever. And she, with her good friend, her Sukal, she sails to the island of, of Enki, the, the god of wisdom who has become a tyrant, who has stolen human culture and less, left toxic kind of celebrity mimics in its wake. And what she does as a trickster redeemer, she does not fight him. She gets him drunk, you know, with this fabulous liquor she's brought, and she outdrinks him. And as he gets drunk, he bestows back on her these qualities of culture called mes, M-E apostrophe S. But it's interesting that it begins again with the erotic arts. So the first thing he gives to her is he goes, I give to you the, 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 the me, the meme, the, the cultural quality of you know, amusing the, phala, the phallus and tickling the vulva, and she goes, I take that. And then ensues, you know, and then mathematics and writing and, you know, architecture and, you know, mythology and, you know, dreaming and, you know, all the elements of culture. But it's kind of adorable that, that you know, the erotic arts are, are lead or at least equal to, like, writing, you know. So she puts all these these qualities of culture in her boat, and she sets sail with her sukal, you know, and... Uh, back to humanity. It's a Promethean kind of a deal. And, you know, the tyrant god wakes up and says to his assistant, you know, what happened to culture? And his assistant says, well, you got drunk. You, you got out drunk, and you gave them back to Inanna. So he does send demons after her, which is important for all of us. You know, it's, it's like you're not yet in the free and clear. There's still, But she's so pumped up on bravado and friendship and the exhilaration of the experiment and her own trickster like ha 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 that she's really just standing on the boat you know and fends off the demons with with play you know and sails back to humanity and restores culture and then there is cultural renaissance and humans can have a wise and collaborative and ingenious culture it's perfect so it says those who make it back from the underworld and not everyone does it's you know it's rough out there but earn the right to participate in being, you know, cultural trickster redeemer to restoring actual collaborative culture to humanity. So I go, that's that's a perfect one, and it's perfect for now. Pluto is the descent to the underworld, and then out of that comes the Uranus trickster ingenuity and the revitalizing of Renaissance. And again, a Renaissance happens in the realm of culture, and you know, it has no dogma or ideology. It's irresistible. It's not against anything. It's irresistibly magnetic. You know, so, uh, yes. Oh, and then, you know, we might want to think about, you know, what are the fuels we cultivate? Everything, you know, literal is also metaphoric, so the fuels our culture runs on. I, I love a great trickster ally, uh, Bob Goff, who, who works with, uh, you know, on the Native American reservations putting up sustainable energy, and he gives to us from a colleague, a young student named Curtis Kataba, the wonderful word indigenuity, indigenuity and we go yes that's exactly what we want to excavate and animate in ourselves and so when he's talking to you know evangelical christians he says we don't want the fuels from hell you know he shows photos the oily fracking coal thing we want the fuel from heaven the sun and the wind i go oh that is just right you know that is the metaphoric agility and play required now 
you know, and it does, it cracks people up. And, you know, it's it's also the realm of, you know, everything we like. We go, well, WikiLeaks is an interesting, you know, uh, uh, new, democratic nutrient. And so the mythological version would be, you know, so we have WikiLeaks. And WikiLeaks is, you know, just saying, may anything that is up to no good be revealed, rendered harmless, and become an occasion for mirth. <laughs> you know, so how do we, you know, play? Okay, Caroline. Now, here's what I'd like to ask you. As I'm uh-huh. listening to you, I'm getting a feeling for the mythopoetic, metaphoric language precision that you use in understanding what's happening in the world. And you have these seven principles that you call visionary activist principles. And, you know, the first one is believe nothing, entertain possibilities. You call that principle zero. That's our trickster because there's really eight principles here. But then here's principle one. Imagination lays the tracks for the reality train to follow. And as I'm listening to you, I can see this emphasis that you place, this love that you have of using our imagination to, quote unquote, lay the tracks. But does the reality train really follow our imagination? Or do we just imagine things and, hey, that's great. That's imagination. Wonderful. I'm glad you're imagining that. Good for you. Well, believe nothing, you know, but uh, experiment, experiment, experiment. And over, you know, countless fabulous examples as a strategy for personal or global uh, conflict, it says, you know, um, start with the desirable vision, the story that could engage everyone rather than what we, you know, laughingly call realism. Because if we start with what's realistic, quote-unquote, which is really in the realm of the reality police that kind of patrols the borders of imagination, um, we go, oh, no. If we start with the desirable vision, then avenues of ingenious synchronicity open up. You know, one of the things that I I, I do know, because I invite everybody to experiment, believe nothing but entertain these possibilities, is that um, Yornus, the trickster, is about you know synchronicity, equality, democracy, and we go, what's what's the connection there? And what I've tried out, you know, years ago, I go, what is what is the connection? Almost immediately, when I wondered that internally, events arranged themselves externally in such a way that it made it very clear when we look when we look down at somebody or up at somebody, there is no synchronicity, there is no magic. Um, you know, we have different roles on stage, but in a sense, when we meet backstage we're all like hey how you doing straight across when we do that the 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 crucialness of ally etiquette when we treat each other which doesn't mean being nice nice comes from the word nescient which means ignorant but it means like sizzly straight across the rate of synchronicity increases dramatically and i just kind of offer this for people to experiment with and the implications are way cool because it means the dementors of doom and boom you know may have more money and lawyers and relentless kind of, you know, death dealing, whatever. I love Eddie Izzard saying, you know, what does the schedule of these of tyrants look like? Death, 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 tea, death, death, lunch. We can hardly get down to the gym. You know, um, but it says, you know, if we treat each other well, you know, even though the Dementors may have more, you know, money or lawyers, you know, there's no magic. If we treat each other well, then we are in cahoots with nature's, you know, evolutionary ingenuity and things open. You know, so... Part of the model of the astrological language with whom, you know, we've, we've played, you know, visionary activist astrology, is that the planets represent living qualities of intelligence that suffuse nature and reside within each one of us, you know, connecting us to these larger forces. 
And so Saturn, focus, you know, authority. Sa- you know, Saturn is the part of us that knows how to define things, take vows, dedications. But Saturn's terrible at realism. So we take a vow and we go, I intend, I want to do this. How? And then we get depressed because it's, oh, oh, it's uh, against all odds, you know. But against all odds are the odds that trickster likes. So Uranus and Jupiter represent the kind of trickster booking agency. And they go, don't worry about how. You'll, in, this, in this high-frequency field, you'll be amazed at how how happens. The dedication strengthens each person's signal to, you know, that then specifically kind of opens the path. So the Saturn part of us, dedication magnetizes opportunity. Dedication, Saturn's job ends there. Jupiter and Uranus, in a sense, chime in and say, we'll do the booking. You know, we'll do the path opening in ways that will make you bark with laughter and realize that you couldn't possibly have controlled, determined how. You know, and it's a worthy experiment that I've, you know, forever been doing so that I go, no, this is not, you know, I'm proffering this going, it's a really great experiment to undertake, and, and it, it seems also really um, uh, strongly counseled. Because um, we all know how reassuring it is when those synchronicities increase, and we say, you know, does synchronicity actually increase, or is it always like wonderful British author Terry Pratchett? He says, you know, ingenuity is sleeting through the universe until it hits a receptive molecule, and then it's like, boom, Shakespeare. You know, so that's a great metaphor. So we go, we want to become receptive and available, going, we are available for this, you know, we are dedicated to this kind of quality of breakthrough, or each one of us really being invited to say, what is our cultural medicine that we want to brew and contribute to the team now? And then avenues of ingenuity, possibility, synchronicity do indeed open from that. And so the, the model, you know, there are, there are lots of parts of all of us that are, you know, realistic and, you know, everything. What I'm uh, honoring, you know, is, is the return of what's been so long exiled is the trickster redeemer, which is the part of us that likes against all odds. I mean, there are realistic parts of us that go, oh, whaley, whaley, oh, no, you know, but there's a part of each one of us you know, coming alive now that we want to encourage, uh, a great word, encourage, you know, to feed the heart, um, that likes against all odds, that appears on the world stage, that appears in nature when everything is at its darkest and most dire, you know, in this time of dire beauty, that's when the trickster redeemer, you know, returns. And mythologies are, are full of this, you know, part of the, the myth of the grail legend, which is kind of hovering around us too, is that the grail legend, you know, the, the round table was comprised of shining radiant individuals, pretty equal, even within a kind of king myth, and it was dedicated, you know, to the well-being of the community. That's what real heroism is for. And at the sort of ending of one cycle of the Grail legend, all the really spiritual people leave. Uh, Gawain leaves, you know, Arthur goes off uh, to, you know, hang out in Avalon and take Pilates classes. Merlin goes off, you know, and uh, with, with uh, you know, yoga teacher. Um, they, they all leave. They go, we want to go be completely spiritual people. And they leave the world in the hands of the strictly secular. And here we are today. And all these myths are kind of awaiting animation. And so we say, well, the Grail legend didn't exactly end. It was put on pause, and we want to hit play, you know. So we're, we're calling back, you know, in, in culture, in all of ourselves, come on back, return, because the Grail legend does leave, you know, it's, it's waiting for the play button, because it says Arthur did not die. He goes to Avalon, 
you know, to await the world's call at a time of dire necessity for, you know, positive leadership. And we go, now, now would be really good. And in the same way, one of my favorite trickster redeemers from the South, well, it's really a couple, you know, the great voodoo queen ancestress, you know, Marie Laveau, uh, and uh, coupled with High John. High John the Conqueror, trickster redeemer, comes over as a syncretized being, you know, with, with uh, African uh, servitude, slavery. Um, but he uh, addresses the tyrant, liberates even the tyrant, finishes everything off with a laugh. In the same way as King Arthur, it says when he didn't go away, he goes to reside in High John the Conqueror route to await the world's call. So this call and response, you know, all of us to, it costs nothing to say, I don't believe in anything, but anything that could help, come on in, you know. Um, and that's part of the function of art and also the marketplace. You know, the, the trickster god lives in the marketplace in almost all global mythology, which is very heartening. The marketplace is not meant to be some corporate mall. It's meant to be the lively, the, the, the zocalo, the caravanserai going, look, here's spices and stories. It's where the storyteller lives. It's here's spices from Syria, and here's this ingenuity from Mexico, and here's all this, you know, um, coming in. And so it says, yeah, the the marketplace is a sacred place, and that's also a whole other, you know, huge realm that you know that you've been, uh, you know, a, a great mistress of in a sense, which is restoring the the sacred play of money, you know, that it be you know a a a fuel, a positive fuel for Renaissance, and that we step into intimacy with everything that's daunting, you know, and, and also lend it a kind of, you know, uh, metaphoric agility. I, I love a, a great friend of mine who is a, a complete money mistress in, a, in ways that are like, oh, teach us. And she says that even when she had a conventional job before she made a gazillion dollars writing novels that she loves, um, she said that she knew, she was taught that money was an ally and it's good to make it like an animal ally. I go, ooh. This is a fun way to go. Your money animal. You know, and she said being an Aries herself, she said it was a low maintenance animal. All she had to do was rub it on the head and the belly and, you know, tell it to go out and she said and it would always bring back opportunity and wealth. I go, That's fun. Let's play. You know, let's play with that. Um, but this realm of marketplace and money and the kind of taking things way back to, you know, what is the originating impulse and how to give it fresh, vital expression for now. Um and 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 be up for this, you know, all-inclusive renaissance that wants to happen. And that's the model of leadership, you know. Um, so when people say, "Oh, we're so disappointed in, you know, Obama," or "We're so disappointed in the political realm," I go, "That's very boring. Um, that's very predictable. That's very reactionary." Um, you know, again, uh, uh, cultivating, take, assuming cultural lead, magnetizing the desirable story. Going, this is where we're going. Uh, disappointment and if if our own when we go to the deeper levels of Saturn and the realm of complicity, you know if our own team could release into Pluto's bubbling cauldron compost bin, you know our addiction to righteous finger wagging disappointment, release our complicity in that dynamic, then we get to a deeper substructure of the whole creative cavorting. It's it's a it's a whole wonderful deep realm. This word complicity not shame not blame but it just means whatever's going on we are lending it creative juice and if we know that as a frame we can choose to inhale our chi our creative energy from an undesirable story and exhale it into the desirable story 
so I, I like to say, you know, to the team, you know, let's inhale, you know, the the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's in let's suck in that G. Like let's suck that G in and exhale it to where it belongs, which is everywhere, you know. A pragmatic mysticism, you know, democratic animism. And what it leaves is the kingdom of heaven is at hand, much more fun and true. And yeah, and it actually in keeping with the liberating teachings of Jesus, which then were kind of co-opted by Paul as the early Karl Rove into a corporate supporting thing. But anyway, so the liberation of all teachings, and that means also cultivating everyone's direct autonomy, no priesthood, you know, no mediation, but direct, you know, intuitive connection is really what we're going for. Um, I, I love the default setting of um, the, the one channel whose language I really love, uh, you know, Esther Hicks channeling Abraham or whatever she's doing. But she says, you know, we can't convince or argue or change anybody or bomb them or whatever or legislate them into doing the right thing but we can see each person connected to their own wise autonomy and that is a very worthy default setting as an experiment you know even in small kerfuffles when somebody's you know talking loudly at a concert you know because at first we go shh you know right which then sets up this tension and we're almost waiting for the person to do the bad thing again because part of us is kind of like oh or you know and just letting that go going no i see them connected to their own wise sense of appropriate decorum and it works i've seen this but but it also engages our own perversity which is part of us is kind of hoping for the person to do the bad thing again so that we can be righteous and we really want to throw into the cauldron, you know, all these worn-out phrases and terms and mythologies. You know, righteous indignation, you know, is a fuel that serves empire. And so regardless of what we call ourselves, if we're finger-wagging righteous, we're serving empire, and we're serving the finite game of the reality police. You know, it, it's, again, is our manner of relating an offering? Mulala, woof, woof, want to play? You know, or an imposition, dum, 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 dum. And that has to do with our tone of voice and our language and our manner and our and our intention. Um, and I think part of the, the the visionary activist frame is, you know, we can't do anything by ourselves. Really, it is collaborative cahoots in in some way. We can't even be the people we want to be. But that's the purpose of vows. Going, I want to be. This is the direction I'm going in. Oh, spirit of wolf that animates the universe, or whatever metaphor we feel friendly with. You know, hold me to this. This is this is the. The, the art form of the, you know, customized trickster redeemer I want to be. And that's, you know, a useful supportive frame. And again, experiment, experiment. So, yeah, absolutely. You know, imagination lays the tracks for the reality train. If we can conjure it and put it into the field, it becomes, you know, um, it, 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 it assumes molecular reality. Telling the desirable story, you know, magnetizes, you know, matter. Um, into being. It wants to happen. Now, Caroline, a couple of times you've talked about the planets, and obviously you're an astrologer, a visionary yeah. activist astrologer. When you talk about Saturn, Pluto, Neptune, what does it mean for you in a sense? Meaning, how do you see these planets out there in the sky influencing us as energy signatures that we're connected to? I mean, what's your view of this? Well, I don't exactly view it as primarily as influence. It, it, it's a beautiful language disguised as whatever we think it is of the interrelatedness of everything that reminds us, 
you know, we're in a storytelling creation that everything is talking to us all the time by its shape, its color, its song, its rhythm. And if we humans just approach the world with informed, reverent curiosity, we'd be back in the, in the you know, cahooting, cavorting dance. So it is a language. So the planets are real, and they also symbolize. We live in a symbolic creation. So they are they are real, and every, as everything is real, and everything symbolic. So we say there's an energy that we might call the sun, which is real, you know. But all cultures prior to our own kind of, you know, uh, industrial thing, um, all cultures would invite, you know, the light of the sun to animate that culture's desirable story. You know, that's the in. You know, we're going 32,000 years back to the cave paintings where they're, you know, inviting the animal powers out of the walls. You know, um, we know all of the standing stones, you know, uh, uh, Malta and, and Egypt and Stonehenge and whatever. Um, they're inviting the light of the sun at the equinox solstices to illumine, you know, a picture at the back of the cave, which is we're inviting, we're offering this story to be animated by the light force. And then the planets, you know, are the reflected light in in some sense of the, of the sun, but each one of them is a quality, and it does indeed say, you know, what the planets represent are qualities of intelligence in nature's organization that suffuse everything, and that reside within us. When we when we do, you know, a birth chart, it's a map of, you know, what was going on when we were born. It's just a stylized factual map, and we go real map, symbolic map of our navigating instructions to ourselves, and also symbolic map of the interior community of us in which each planet represents a quality of intelligence and part of our gift to be contributed to the world in customized unique ways to each one of us so it's a beautiful language you know it's it's it is uh, witty and 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 horrific that it's become the gold standard of you know kind of academic scorn um but it is you know a profound language all cultures have had an earth sky story you know, and all cultures grow their own astrology. And so really right now, you know, um, the deepest level of astrology is, is, is it's a kind of choreography map of what wants to happen. And I don't think we need astrology or anything, but it is one of the great divination systems as an intuitive assist to guide us to our own, you know, intuitive sense of the pattern and the strategy and timing you know, um, and ideally, it's really meant to support our own sense of you know resonance that it speaks to something in our blood going, yes, that's that's right. And it offers a frame. It it offers again like the magic mirror. It offers a critique, and you know, astrology can be misused like any language. You know, in which people go boogity boogity prediction boogity boogity, blah, blah, blah. but that's that's a that's spiritual harassment. That's not really what it's for. It's critique. You know, and this is, you know, what could happen. This is a disaster, um, which means against the stars and the opposite of disaster, disaster against the stars. Um, this means underworld where our souls speak more deeply to us going, oh, against the stars. The opposite in our own language is consider. Con means with and sitter is the stars. When we pause to consider, we line our inner and outer selves up with the kind of larger collaborative dance. We become, you know, agents of principles rather than subject to laws and so yes i love um I, lo I love this language more and more and more um it is astounding at its useful specificity in personal counseling but also i i do a lot of you know 
readings for the culture as it organizes, because we don't have isolated crises. We have a crisis of isolation, and we, we want these unifying meta-stories that, so it's all, you know, one large thing in many, many forms of expression. And then on one level, it's about our, our loss of, you know, um, collaborative willingness. And this, this is where the Mabinogian chimes in from the 12th century. We go, cooperators are standing by, all the mythic people, you know, are speaking to us very, very much. In in the 12th century, the Mabinogian, very old stories, Welsh kind of Arthurian legends are, are written down, but they're older than that. But there's a great moment when the elders get together and they go, uh-oh, the men just found out they have something to do with children. Ooh, and it's not going to be good for women or the earth for a while, and humans are going to set forth on their individual, individual path until the earth herself might die, they wrote in the 12th century. And then at that point, you know, becomes the opportunity, they wrote in the 12th century, when humans will keep all the value of their uniqueness, but will join once again in kin collaboration and redeem the world. They wrote that in the 12th century. You know, they're pitching it to us, you know, in that language. And we go, absolutely, you know, we set forth on our humanistic, individual, individual, rah, 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 you know, um, forms um, until the earth herself might die, you know, with a loss of kinship, not only with the planet, but with each other, until at a certain crisis point, humans then, you know, at first one, then two, then a group, then whatever, and then it enters the memosphere, okay, <clears throat> as an available invitation, are willing to keep their uniqueness, but join once again in the realization that we're all part of one large pulsing dream, you know, and that there is no sorrow or blessing that we don't all participate in some way if we're not narcoleptically pharmaceuticalized, um, you know, that we feel that, you know, and and we're resonant. Um, so, yeah, every, everything's rooting for us. Now, Caroline, when you sit with the stars, uh, yes, 2012 yes. and the current astrological situation we're in, which many people have commented on, what's your view? Ah, uh, yes, right. Um, well, it's I've got a lot of different kind of layers to it. On on one level, I'm a little bit allergic to the fetishization of 2012, and the shadow part of which is a kind of spiritual colonialism in which, you know, um, recently semi-informed people kind of claim the calendar of a culture that they know little about. On one hand, <clears throat> so it's like oh, alrighty. Um, on the other hand. Um, uh, um, I have a, a friend who is an actual Mayan scholar, um, and uh, um, who years ago in the early 90s, you know, pointed this out to me. And he was one of the people who, he's an actual Mayan scholar. He's an academic. He's, uh, you know, head of the department of archaeoastronomy uh, at the University of Maryland, and and he did excavate one of the vases uh, with two other archaeologists that shows the seven lords of time gathering to create time, August 13, 3114 B.C. And they do indeed say, you know, they will reconvene on December 21st, 2012, to reinvent time. And they're giving a huge party, you know, um, and everyone's invited. Um, so I go, I, I like that thing. And my friend, uh, you know, Dr. John Carlson said, you know, it's not an Aztec vision, like you're all going to die, although that's an interesting mythology. You know, in the Aztec vision, you know, each world is born of and will die of its thematic element. And in the Aztec realm, we were born of and will die of motion, earthquake, you know, or busyness. We, we are born of and will die of busyness. The Mayans leave it more open, you know, in, in a complex realm. It's, it's the reinvention of time. And so I'm, 
rooting for it with some justification as you know a kind of renaissance time um so we say prediction you know almost always a negative thing um prophecy kind of fun you know um but really you know we do not have a fixed future there there's a lot on the day so if it's used you know as a kind of deterministic or let's just put on our work table that that which makes us passive is toxic and that which engages us in a dynamic way is tonic however i I think one of the you know the democratic animism and kind of pragmatic uh, you know mysticism of our ancestral um allies is is crucial that there's some things we want to retire um it's just not useful mythologies the idea of importance specialness and chosen people is is really like let's throw that into pluto's bubbling cauldron blah 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 because it is you know it belongs to empire in the finite game and part of what's leading us to cataclysmic death and 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 you know complete grumpitude and high dudgeon and meanness and it comes up in many sneaky forms you know when people go i am one of the seven archangels from the pleiades who you know is in charge of the evolution on earth and and i think our attitude is we go well whatever your faux slightly toxic empire mythology you know welcome aboard we need everyone you know but leave your importance behind but we need everybody you know whatever the thing um so i like putting the distinctions and say even in shamanistic traditions we say you know all you know all religions want to be um you know all gods want to be liberated from past confines of human imagination you know and in in that realm you know everything's up for satire and play and so you know there's nothing so sacred that it can't be critiqued so even in the realm of shamanism and I know many great shamans you know but there is a kind of addiction to having an enemy you know it's it's not always but it's a kind of you know these people are against me and these forces or whatever and we go can we release our complicity in our addiction to having an enemy you know can we reframe the dynamic you know um you know and release that sense of status or importance remember that when inanna goes to the underworld she is stripped of everything external from which she gains her identity but also importance and status and we go you know if we aspire as i do you know to move our emotional default setting to woof woof want to play um then you know it is it is the playful thing but we release importance seriousness this is a whole kind of larger thing you know and and status and are willing to engage and to shape shift with metaphoric agility you know so that we have no stake in hierarchical status or importance that that seems to be one of the cleansing descent to the underworld and so a, a willingness to examine all teachings you know with reverent irreverence you know going is this you know conducive to inviting everyone into play does it have any sneaky you know yeah uh, empire supporting specialness you know which is a lot you know i mean i i studied in many esoteric schools some completely dingy there was great usefulness in all of them you know but but i do but some of the metaphors were useful for a time and then want to be retired and the gurdjieffian model much great teaching but a dangerous metaphor we who are studying are becoming awake others are asleep you know special specialness alert and we go mm, i think it wants to be thrown into the cauldron of trickster democratic animism as you know you know a flag on that play you know pulling status out of you know whatever you know five yard penalty declined um <laughs> and the the trickster model you know about you know language that's a wonderful play we want to suffuse ourselves with 
you know, spiciness. It's not, again, it's not nice and whatever. It's spicy. You know, Groucho Marx uh, has given me many wonderful exit lines that were great. You know, and in tyrannical circumstance, I, I love the line, I've had a wonderful evening. This wasn't it, but I've had a wonderful evening. You know, we leave jolly. You know, or sometimes on occasion when I've, you know, playfully, you know, gone into the Abrahamic religions and, and, and said, you know, the story is kind of trippy, like but like a shipwreck, beautiful barnacles and corals have grown around it. And sometimes somebody will come up and go, I've never been so offended in all my life. And I go, ah, but the day is still young. You know, you, you know, more could happen. Um, the play, and also, you know, with radio and whatnot, and, and being willing to be provocative, but playfully provocative, wanting everybody to be liberated, when people get into, you know, harumphitude, I go, fair enough. You know, let's join hands and jump into the cauldron together and go, if there's anything in either one of us that is self-important or not dedicated to the good of all, you know, let us be cleansed of that. Some people back away in horror, but some people are like, oh, yeah, what? sure, you know, how unusual. The unexpected response is liberating to everyone. You know, when seated next to, I, I used all my, you know, uh, my, my frequent flyer points to upgrade to business class so I could talk to warmongers, uh, and it worked pretty well. Um, and it was always, you know, degree of difficulty getting ratcheted up. But I could always, if I didn't get solid and grumpy, there was a point of agreement in which every one of them, I mean, Northrop Grumman people and whatever, could agree that the only solution to terrorism is a wonderful life for all children. They, they all agreed with that. And at one point, talking to Guy, you know, in which he goes, well, you know, I'm, I teach military intelligence at Berkeley, and I was commander of a ship that bombed Iraq in the first Gulf War, and you probably think I'm a horrible person. I was like... No. And he's like, no, no. Oh, well, let's talk. And we got to a really interesting place. I mean, I said, all wars are a failure of imagination. He goes, no, I can't agree with that. And I go, well, how about this one? He goes, yeah, this one's completely stupid. I go, well, we'll start there. We'll start there and work out, you know. But the idea of, you know, what is meaningful, that, you know, the wonderful movie Lives of Others is about how the sociopathic heart can bloom again. We, we don't know who you know, comes alive or whom. We cannot presume to judge, but we want to leave the possibility open. The, the trickster model is to leave room for others to behave in unexpectedly appropriate ways. We're not counting on it. We're not expecting it, because expectation is indeed the partner of disappointment. Uh, it's another way of carrying around a portable prison, expecting, oh, oh, no. But willing, you know, willingness, it's like if we go to a party or an event or a teaching, you know, expecting, oh, I knew that wouldn't be good, you know. But if we go, you know, I'm willing. Jonas the trickster says to each one of us, I will connect you to the coolest things possible and open the path, and all I want from you guys and Gaia's is willingness. And so we go, hey, what the hell? You know, we're willing. <laughs> you know, it's a very different feel going to an event, you know, expecting uh, or willing. You know, then we're an agent of democratic play, and to leave room for people to behave in unexpectedly appropriate ways is, you know, it's like the New York phrase, you know, you never corner a mugger. You, you leave somebody a way out. This is, now we're back to the spiraling model. And, and just wonderful, you know, prosaic, um, you know, examples of this, because uh, once we start to play with it, uh, they pour in. But, you know, a uh, niece of mine, you know, going to visit really fundamentalist pretty hardcore relatives who strongly disapproved of divorce, and she'd just gotten divorced. And I said, you know, leave room for them to behave in unexpectedly appropriate ways. You know, don't count on it. And she goes, I'll try. 
you know. And then she called up and she said, well, they met me on the porch with folded arms and disapproving glare, saying, as you know, we strongly disapprove of divorce, but he was so boring and we're really very happy for you. Come on in and have some pie. You know, it's just, you know, just, just leaving room, not counting on it, but just leaving room as a kind of democratic well-wishing to invite out because you never know. Now, Caroline, you've hinted and actually said many things about this during our conversation, but as my final question for you, I'd love if you could just summarize and underscore for somebody who wants to develop more of the trickster redeemer in themselves. I'd like to have more of that archetype alive in my life, the trickster redeemer. I've been inspired by this conversation. What are the steps that I would take? Well, first, for the fun of it, I, I, I am, I'm in favor myself of composting the word archetype, um, just for the fun of it, because it's kind of Jung's, um, you know, word they invented, which sounds a little bit mechanical and containing, but, you know, living force, you know, or whatever, what the hell. So I think it's, I think right now the, the, the invitation really, in a sense, is, you know, um, each, one, <clears throat> each one of these intelligences represented by a planet is, beseeching us you know all of nature and creation is awaiting our willingness and our wonder to join back in the collaborative dance you know and so each one of them has a you know resonates within you know ourselves so just to to repeat Uranus especially says to each one listening you know i will <clears throat> connect you to coolest increased rate of synchronicity all i want from you is is willingness so a procla- proclamation of our availability for play you know, our willingness to experiment with moving our emotional default setting to wolf-wolf-wanna-play. Now, it does take some practice, and that's why I'm really dedicated to how we reframe things, how we tell stories, the language we use, you know, in a playful way. And, and that is kind of practicing so that we're available for the moment to be danced into place. You know, just a, a brief example, but... um. So we practice these things. You know, we were practicing eloquence and language, and there's many ways that, you know, you and I might cahoot on, you know, to offer such, and there's many ways that I offer such in, 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 in radio and different forms of engaging, you know, with the likes of myself. Um, you know, and so a brief example was I, I was synchronously uh, invited to a, a big scientific um, conference on water, the problems of water and the ingenious solutions. And it was the world's leading engineers and scientists and cold fusion experts from around the world. And um, just briefly before the, I was invited as a guest, and I saw on the website and said, Caroline Casey will lead a water ritual during lunch at the Swedish embassy with, you know, homeland security and whatnot there. And I go, oh, holy moly, uh, let me think of something. Um, so we won't mention astrology early, um, but so I had just a moment, and as I as I went to speak to them in the midst of their fancy Swedish embassy brunch, you know, or lunch, um, uh, somebody handed me a bunch of yellow flowers. Yellow flowers, yellow roses are sacred to Oshun, the water goddess. We were right on the banks of the Potomac River, and I go, well, this is self-assembling. And I said to each scientist, in all of our blood lives the myth of the restoration of the waters of life. And they all paused, you know, that something in them wanted this spoken to. And then Homeland Security and Coast Guard and leading scientists were all completely willing to walk to the banks of the Potomac River and toss these yellow roses in as a willingness of our, our, as an announcement of our willingness to collaborate with the spirit of water to resolve the horrors that humans have inflicted. 
you know, uh, on this on on water. Uh, and they were all completely willing. And that night at the party, very fancy party, full of scientists, they all became mystics. The Indian, the Indian engineer said, "I am, you know, engineer. I I thought that there was either science or this silliness, but I realize I can be both. You know, and that's part of our dynamic to wed what's been falsely estranged as a cruel, you know, ruse of the reality police. You know, pragmatism and mysticism love each other. Science and mythology and reverie and spirituality, they love each other. These are false divorces. So then everybody wanted to become a mystic. The cold fusion physicist guy comes up and says, well, to be a physicist, you've got to be a mystic. And then everybody wanted to be a mystic. The next day, unplanned, okay, there was a man with an ingenious invention uh, surrounded by press and, you know, again, important people and everything. And it was a machine that ran on one tablespoon of gasoline and the rest on, on water, but it wasn't working. Mercury was retrograde, but I refrain from saying that. Um, and the cold, you know, intense, embarrassed presses there, a lot of pressure. It wasn't working. You know, great embarrassment. The cold fusion expert physicist uh, steps up and says, I think it needs more pressure, and he leans on the machine, not working. So, you know, I saw the moment. Uh, and I just stepped in, and I put one hand on the machine and one hand on the inventor, and I said to the inventor, do you vow that this technology will never be used for war? And without a second's hesitation, he said, I do. And the machine went, va-da-boom. And everyone was so delighted and liberated that it wasn't just them, that there were larger forces in cahoots. It's not just humans, you know. And it was like, wow, that. So, you know, for all of us, it's like we practice, we prepare, and then the moment opens where in a clean, non-important way, you just step in, you know, as agent of, you know, playful and profound redemption. That's like, oh, you know, um, and as we cultivate that, you know, in each, in ourselves, you know, then these opportunities do open. And it's a constant, you know, practice, dedication, play, but really play, you know, and it, and it does take some you know, it does, it does take some dedication to to decondition into this play realm and into the linguistic realm and into the playful realm, but that's, you know, what I love most. I've been talking to Caroline W. I think that might stand for Woof Woof Casey. <laughs> and uh, Caroline has created two audio programs with Sounds True, very playful, very informative programs. One's called Visionary Activist Astrology, and it's a six-session audio series on becoming a secret agent for transformation. It's also a six-session audio series on really understanding the language of astrology from a very creative standpoint, connecting to the energies and the language and the symbology of the planets. She also has created a program called Making the Gods Work for You. It's a performance audio that's based on a book of the same title, The Astrological Language of the Psyche, Making the Gods Work for You. Caroline Woof Woof, thank you so much. It's always great to connect with you. Woof Woof. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening. <laughs>